Man, thank you guys, Carson, Tyler, Heather, West on Base. Um, man, how's everybody doing today? Good. Hey, man, we missed Paxton this morning. We can all pray for him uh, that he will he will get well, feel a lot better uh, in the coming week. Uh, he can be back here next week, so let's do that this morning as well. Uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue in our series called Gospel Humility. We're walking through the book of Philippians. So, so here's the end game. Here's the goal. We want to be as a church. We want to be gospel people. We want to be people to whom the gospel means everything. People that are, are continually focused on believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, of living in its reality as a community of believers together, and then ultimately living out that gospel in the way we demonstrate the love of Christ to our neighbors, to the world around us. This morning, we're going to be reading from the book of Philippians, specifically verse 18 all the way through 30. And I think it's, it's just really important for us to kind of set our minds on this reality. In a modern world, sometimes we open this ancient text and we say, How, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me today? What does this mean for me in my life and in, in, in Chelsea and Shelby County, Alabama, and, and where I live with my family and my work and my life? What, what do all these things mean for me. Well, here's the thing. When we open the scriptures, we need to recognize and understand. Uh, we'll, we'll do a little bit of the history backstory here in a second, but Paul writes this to a specific group of believers. He writes it to this young church. So we'll be candid and clear. Paul doesn't write this letter to us. However, this letter is for us. God has placed this in the scriptures for us, for our benefit, for our encouragement that we might understand and deepen in the reality of, the knowledge of, the goodness of, the wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's where we find ourselves in Philippians. Uh, the past couple of weeks, we walked through the, the previous 17-ish, uh, and even per, per, the part of the first part of verse 18. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, what we find Paul doing is writing this letter. He's imprisoned in Rome. He's writing a letter to this kind of Roman province, this colony, this city called Philippi. There's this group of believers there. They're an incredible, faithful church. They've even sent someone, Epaphroditus, to Rome to give Paul so, some some money for ministry, some things that he needs, all that kind of stuff. Paul has this incredible dynamic relationship with all of these believers in this town of Philippi. And so he writes them this letter specifically to encourage them and draw them to the understanding of what it means to live out the humble life of the gospel, to live in such a way where we reflect and demonstrate and show Christ to the world around us. He does this, and he starts the first part of this letter, and he, he talks about the thanks that he has. Every time he remembers this group of believers, he thanks the Lord for them. He talks about all the amazing things that God has done in them by the work of his spirit, by the power of the gospel. And then Paul describes the state that he's in, his imprisonment, and how ultimately that is for good that it is a, actually a very good thing that he's in the place where he is because the gospel is advancing, going forth, even, even though he's in chains. The number one premier, ultimately, person, the, the person of whom would be the greatest importance of, of sharing the gospel with the world is in chains. And yet God is using his word to get through all of the Roman guard to all of these people. The gospel is advancing, even in what would seem like a hard circumstance this week. 
As we look through these verses, we're going to find a couple of things. Paul describing not just the challenge of the circumstance, but how resolute he is in his belief of what God is calling him into and what he'll be delivered from. And then he's going to use this phrase that is one of the most powerful phrases in the New Testament, this bold statement to describe that Christ, that the gospel is more important than anything. So much so that it even goes beyond contrast that the gospel of Jesus Christ and its reality, all that Jesus has done for him and for us as believers... Nothing compares. This is Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 30. Philippians 1, 18 through 30. Uh, And I think it's helpful to to read the the previous portion of 18, even as we walk into the latter part. All right. It starts here. It says this. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And this is the passage here. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it had been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. So there's a lot here to unpack But Paul is ultimately beginning with this idea that he is to be delivered. He's going to be delivered from this circumstance. And and quite often, it's really, really easy for us to read this with temporary eyes and say, okay, this means that he's going to be delivered from his present situation. It means he's going to be taken out of the bondage, the chains that he faces in Rome. But here's what it says. It says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, this this is a really beautiful call for us to pray. The Spirit works through it. The help of the Spirit, Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. But the word that Paul uses there is he describes deliverance as one that actually harkens back to a passage in Job. And he's actually talking about final deliverance, ultimate salvation, truly being with the Lord in a full and complete manner. He's not talking about leaving this circumstance. And he describes this to this group of believers for a very particular reason. Once we just read, you got down to the end of that passage, and Paul says, look, I've had 
these things that I've experienced, this persecution, these challenges, all the ways the world and, it, and, it, and the enemies of the faith have come against me, I've had that and I'm having it now and I'm writing to you to prepare you for this because you will experience this. He says all of this and the word he uses for deliverance is one that is for final deliverance. He's talking about the ultimate end and then he makes the argument through this He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I won't be ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He references perseverance through the deepest trials because Paul is saying that not just that things merely kind of turn out all right in the end, that I can persevere because everything will be okay once and for all finally. That is of hope, but even more so, Paul's doing something incredibly powerful here. In the sense that he's not saying, I'm going to be delivered from this moment. What you've got to understand is he's accepting that he doesn't know how long this moment is going to last. He doesn't know how long he's going to be imprisoned. Because he writes to the church, the Philippian church, and he tells them, I'm going to be delivered. But I don't know about this temporary situation that I'm in. I know what the eternal goal is, what's going to happen eternally with who I am in Christ. But for this moment, I can't really speak to that. And he's doing something incredibly powerful because he's saying that I'm not worried about right now. He's also saying, I'm not just trying to get out of where I am right now. So for all of us in this room, we all experience roadblocks, problems, things that impede what we perceive to be our trajectory in life, right? There's financial struggles. There's emotional struggles. There's things that happen to us that are outside of us that affect us in what we perceive to be negative ways. And this is what we do as humans. We say, I got to get beyond this. I got to get past this. Because you and I have this bad habit of kind of wanting things to go our way. I don't know about you, but I always want it to be easy. Like nice and simple and good and easy. And everybody's happy. And we all smile and no feathers are ruffled. And just life just works. And it goes and it's good. Because when it doesn't do that, when there is this roadblock, there is this thing that happens to me. I face adversity. The natural feeling that creeps up inside of me, and I bet this is you too, is that this is not good. This is actually really bad. And this is just breathing. This is just being alive, right? When something that we don't like happens, we call it bad. What Paul is doing in this moment by not focusing on this, he's he's really kind of teaching the Philippian church this powerful lesson. And we talked a little bit about it last week. It's not just in spite of all this that's happening that things will be good. Paul is saying that this is good. Being in chains is good. This is actually assisting in what God is longing to do. It's actually adding to my spiritual growth. This issue, this problem that I face is not something that I've got to circumvent, that I've got to get around, or I've got to find a way to get past the horrible thing that's happening to me. Instead, Paul says this is blessing. 
This is benefit. Why? Because it's causing him to deepen his trust in Jesus Christ. To rest in the finished work of what God has done, not the temporary moment that he experiences on his own. It's why he can walk through this and get to a place where he says, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And now it gets, quite frankly, if we can be honest here, it starts to get in some ways what might seem to us kind of morbid. Truly, he's just like, look, whether, whether I live or whether I die, my life or my death, Christ is honored. So even the point of pain, even the death that will come to me as a human being and the pain that that will bring, it doesn't compare to the goodness of God. How do you get to a place Where that's real. Because what does he say next? This is one of the boldest phrases you're going to find in the scriptures from somebody who follows Jesus. What does Paul say? For me to live is Christ. But to die is what? Gain. We know that phrase. A number of us, if if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've followed Jesus for any period of time, you likely know this phrase. You're acquainted, at least, with this phrase. You have some familiarity with it. But I want you to think about how astoundingly wild this phrase is. He calls death gain. Do you know what we call death, typically? We call it loss. We describe how we have lost a loved one. We think about how we've lost moments. We've lost time. We've lost opportunities. We've lost the ability to conversate, to connect, to have a relationship. In a human way, almost all of us as humans typically frame death as loss. So who's this guy calling it gain? Do you understand that this is not just the opposite of loss? It's not just that it's not loss, but that it's beneficial. The word gain here, it means profitable. It is more beneficial. Now, you walk these streets, you go to your school tomorrow, or you go to your workplace, and you talk about how death is gain, and see the kind of looks that you get. Seriously. Christ is so treasured by Paul, and he longs to teach this to the church, so treasured that death is gain. Why? Why is death gain? Not that it's not just not loss, but that it's more. That it's much, much, much more beneficial. How is that possible? Well, this is the truth of what the scriptures would teach. Paul would write to the church at Corinth and he would say, to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. That for now we see in a mirror dimly, but soon and then we'll see face to face. Paul's great treasure, his living hope, because it's hope now to live as Christ, in death it is realized He is with his Redeemer. He is with the God, the God of ages, that steps out of eternity and takes on his sin and shame and redeems him. He is with God. 
death is gain. We can hear those things, and I think you and I, for the most part, we can like assent to them. We can mentally, like in a cognitive way, we can say, I know that. I know that death is gain. But we need to ask the Lord to make that true in our heart. That we would believe in the deepest way by the work of the Spirit that to depart is not loss, but it is gain. Because everything in Christ is fully realized in his presence. To live is Christ. The life he lives in the body, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loves him, who gave himself for him. That's life. But to die is gain. It's gain. You don't have to fear, you don't have to be afraid. Because all of the sting of death is taken away by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There is no fear for what's to come. And the end of his human life, his mortal life, because he will see Christ face to face. It's a bold thing to pray, but could we pray that God would work that in our hearts? Look at what he says next in verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. He's going to use the same word uh, that he uses back in verse 11, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So one really beautiful thing here is he says, if I'm, if I'm to live in the fresh, flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So he's talking about work. He's talking about gospel-centered work, the life of living in the faith, that there's work to be done. But he uses that same word that comes from the passage in verse 11, which ultimately says all of that work, all of the, the things that happen as a result of it, it's really all through Jesus Christ anyway. So this is not work-centered, this is grace-centered. It's all coming from Jesus. And in verse 22, he says this, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Life or death. And then he uses this phrase, he says, Which I choose, I cannot tell. Now, if you and I read that in the English... It, it, does, it, it does look very morbid, and it does look very strange. Because it sounds like, in so many ways, that Paul is saying this, I'm the arbiter of my life. I decide whether I will live or whether I will die. And I think for most of us, we can see that's not really congruent with the rest of the text. That doesn't make sense. So why would, why would he say, which I choose, I can't tell? If you look into verse 23, you get some more clarity. It says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What Paul is doing here in this moment, when he says, which I will choose, he's ultimately describing not an action he's going to take, but the emotion that he feels. He's describing the tension of humanity and humility. Because in a human way, this is his great treasure. He longs to be with Jesus. So this is what he wants. He wants, he has this desire to depart and to go be with the Lord. For the race to be finished. But his duty is this. is to live in a humble way where he recognizes And he says, there is more work to be done. There's fruitful labor that's yet to take place. I've got to go live out the gospel and share the gospel, communicate the love that God has for all people throughout the world. I know God has called me to this. 
He says he's going to remain in the flesh because it's more necessary on the account of this church that he writes to, this church in Philippi. He says it's necessary for me to be here. He's not saying this in a prideful way. He's saying it in an obedient way that he believes God is calling him to this. It's also really helpful and important here for us to understand when he says, I don't know which I'll choose because that sounds very strange. He's using a rhetorical device that was really popular in this day. So people that would write to others, that would write a letter, people that would write in, in, in biblical text, but also in just political text, back and forth, the way they would communicate, they would set up this big question of which is more important. And they would allow themselves to exist in the tension of, I don't know which one is better, And then they would demonstrate the one that is ultimately better, and that would help advance the argument on to the people that someone was writing to or speaking to. All that to say this, the goal in Philippians, Paul's writing to this church because he wants to see them grown up in the faith. He wants to see them mature in Christ. He wants them to do this very specifically through the ethic that is modeled in Philippians 2, this big paramount passage that we're going to get to that talks about the way that Christ lived as servant. He wants them to live in this way. And so he's using this as an argument to advance. He's setting up everything in these moments. He's saying, look, you got to understand this is how you live. And he's doing it by demonstrating what humility is. He says, I want this thing. I want to depart, but here's what I'm going to do. And it's because God has called me to this and I need to obey. And it's better for you if I do that. Do you see the humility here? Because he's saying, this is what I want, but this is what I'm going to do because it benefits my brothers and sisters. It benefits other believers. He says he's convinced and he's going to remain and continue with the Philippians. So that... that What I'll choose, you need to understand this really, really clearly. That's not about a decision or an action. It's about his desire emotionally and trying to convey of deep importance what is most important to honor God and to help his brothers and sisters. Look down into verse 26. He describes all these things. He's going to remain in the flesh. He's going to be there with them. He's convinced of this. He believes he's going to be not just redeemed eternally, but even through, at some point, some of these circumstances For a purpose. Look at verse 26. You see this clause. So that. All of these things. Everything that builds to it. Everything that has happened before. All of those previous verses. 18 through 25. They all build to this. What did we find there? That to live is Christ. And to die is gain. That Jesus is not to be above other things. But that Jesus is the only thing. That all of our life is bound up in what Jesus has done. His redemption. The life, death, and resurrection. The good news of this has come to us. So now this is what we believe. All of this builds to this point. So that you may, or so that in me, he's talking about himself as example. You may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. To glory in Christ Jesus. Now this phrase is really unique because what it's talking about is to, to take not, not just pride in, but to, but to give all of oneself to, to revere, to hold of highest honor Christ Jesus. We talked about this the past couple of weeks, but Paul's writing to this group of believers that is in, quite frankly, what is a little Rome. 
It's, all, it's just a miniature of the life and the citizenship and the, and the policies and, and, the, and the politics of, of Rome at large. So the people here would be people that gloried in themselves and quite frankly gloried in the power of this, of this empire that they were a part of. And so he's saying all of this to live as Christ, to die as gain, to make much of Jesus, Christ as treasure, the gospel as everything. All of that building to this point where they would glory in Christ. And to hear that to us makes sense. Well, of course, we want to glorify the Lord. But to a person in this day. Even a believer to say that all of life is bound up in, is, is, it drives toward the eternal purpose is glorifying someone who was crucified, a Jewish man that was crucified, who people claim rose again. This is the antithesis, this is the opposite of what a Roman culture would glory in. There's no power here. This is a, this is a story in so many ways to the culture around them. That, that doesn't display power and honor. Remember the honor-shame culture we talked about last week that, that exists in this world? To glory in Christ would be dishonorable in so many ways. It would be foolish. You're setting yourself up as a societal failure, as an outcast in so many ways. That's what's happening in this moment. Paul's saying the purpose is to glory in Christ so deeply you don't look like the world you live in. You look different from it. That leads into verse 27 because he's going to describe what the life of the believer looks like in this world, this Roman Empire, this place that glories in itself. That takes glory in all of the temporal things the world has to offer. He says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So it starts with only. And when he says this, he's not saying this is the only thing ever, but he's saying this is the essential focus. This is the main thing. This is in so many ways the thesis statement of what Paul's writing to this church. He's saying, I've told you, I'm thankful for you. I've told you what it's been like to be in prison and how not just God is going to get me through this, but even this moment I can consider it good because of how much I treasure Christ. It's all driving towards him saying to them, this is practically how you live in light of the gospel. And he's going to, in a very clear way, show three very specific things about how believers are supposed to live in a world that says everything around me is going to describe who I am and how important I am. Paul says, no, these things are going to be the main thing. So the main thing is this. You focus on, you rest on living a life that is worthy of. Of the gospel. So Paul all the time is going to tell people how to live. And quite often he's going to use this phrase where he says walk. Like in Colossians in chapter 2 he would say. Therefore just as you've received Christ. So walk in him. And what he means by that is that. Not just picking up one foot and put it in front of the other. But to live in this very particular way. Here he doesn't use walk. He uses this phrase manner of life because the, the way that that word is really constructed here and what he's saying, this is what he's really saying. He's saying only be worthy citizens. Be citizens of. 
the place that you're in worthy of the gospel? So why does he use this citizenship language? Why does he ultimately say only be a citizen worthy of the gospel of Christ? Because this world that he's in, everything is about being Roman. There's, and and there, there's a list. There's a billion things I could tell you about why you would want to be Roman in this day and age. From, from tax breaks uh, to, to all kinds of sort of individualistic and personal freedoms. Paul's even experiencing one because he's not really in prison. He's actually just chained to a Roman guard. That's a benefit because he's a Roman citizen. Everything in this world in this day and age was better if you were a Roman citizen. Paul uses this citizenship language to help these believers understand the point of pride, the badge of honor in this world is to be a part of this great kingdom, this great empire. But he says, you have a countercultural citizenship that is not based on where you are, but who you are. Your worth and your identity is not based on what's around you, It's based on who is in you. This is where your worth, this is where your identity comes from. And ultimately what Paul is doing in this moment is he's telling the the Philippian church, he's telling these believers, I get it. You want to belong. You want to be a part of something. And this is the struggle, not only of, of Paul's day, Not only in a Greco-Roman world, this is our struggle too. We all want to be a part of something. We want to be a part of a great company or a great family. We want to be part of an exclusive club. We want to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves, so it's beyond me. Part of that is the selfish nature of understanding it. I can't fail if it's beyond me. If it's beyond me, it's not going to break because it's not all of me. And the second thing is that that thing will give me identity. That thing will give me belonging. That thing will assure me that I'm worth something. That I matter. And we're all subject to it and we all do it. And we compare our lives against one another and we decide what's of worth and what's not. And we, we, we quite often, those who trusted in Jesus, struggle with, wrestle with finding our identity in where we live. And what we drive. What clubs we belong to. What the brand is on your shirt, for crying out loud. All this stuff. And it looks like Rome. It looks like this place in this day, the people to which Paul is writing. He's saying, don't you understand? None of these things give you the belonging that you long for. Because you are longing to be with one who loves you. You're longing to be satisfied. And, and quite frankly, like, it almost sounds weird saying this because we say this every week. Truly. But like, this is not a trope. 
the scriptures teach us, by God's grace, little old you and me, that we're stupid. And if you have children here and that's not a good word in your house, I'm sorry. But we are. Because we believe the lie that says what I have or where I am is who I am. And it's just not true. Go get more of it. Go get more of that thing and find out if you're satisfied. I'll be short-circuited it and save you the time you won't be. Because you were destined to have a relationship with the God of the universe. Who in spite of all of your sin, your brokenness, your shame, your disobedience, your rebellion... While you were still that sinner, Christ died for you. That's the power of the gospel that that Paul urges these believers to be worthy of. He's talking about belonging to something that is bigger, having a citizenship that's eternal, not earthly. That's what he's getting at here in this word and this phrase. And he uses gospel again here. He's used it a couple of times, not only in, in the first part of 27, but the latter part, because gospel is on his mind because he's driving them toward an ethic. He's driving them to a place, this is how you live. So he says this, he says, live lives worthy of the gospel. And he's going to use these three things that are about to pop up, standing firm, right? Striving, and then not, not being frightened, not being afraid. These are the practical things that believers are called to do as they face opposition from this world, This world in which we don't belong. So all of it's driving toward this, but gospel is the first thing that Paul is thinking of because this is the good news. This is what changes everything. This is not a better club. This is not just a chance to belong to something that is unique and different or exclusive. It's the most inclusive thing there's ever been. God so loved the world. It's everyone. And in this moment, he's saying gospel to help remind them of the good news of all that Christ has done. Not what they need to do to get to God, but what God has done for them in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's also using the word gospel a couple times in this passage because he's writing to these people that are citizens that live in this world that are consumed with the polis of of society, this Roman world, and there's a gospel that they have of their own, too. Um, has anybody ever heard of this thing called the Prying Inscription? It's not super famous, uh, at, le- at least to us this day and age. But in 9 BC, Emperor Caesar Augustus comes uh, to, to this area of the world and begins to colonize and shape a lot of these places. And there's this inscription, this memorial that is made to him. And there's this inscription that's written in stone, and it would be something that was like a very famous phrase to everyone in Rome. Everybody that was in Rome or around Rome or a part of a Roman colony like Philippi, they would know this phrase. So this is kind of, in so many ways, um, uh, look, preamble of the Constitution. This is just kind of embedded into them culturally and politically. Their knowledge, they know this. This is what it says. It says, The birthday of the god Caesar Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. 
the birthday of the god Caesar Augustus. Now that sounds weird, right, to call an emperor a god, but remember, at this time, in this day, there was so much emperor worship in the Roman world. That was the religion that was really characterized, in the, or characterized Philippi in this place, apart from Christianity, because all these people, they worshipped emperors. They worshipped people. They worshipped Rome, so why wouldn't they worship the people that lead it? This is what they do. And then it says this, the birthday, and in this inscription, the birthday of the god Caesar Augustus was the beginning of the good news for the world. What, do you know what that word that is used on that inscription for good news is? It's gospel. It's evangelion. It means truly a heralding, a proclamation. So there's this inscription that is written in the world in which these believers live. This is the good news is that there are emperors who rule. And Paul is using gospel again and again here to say to them, no, that's not true. Augustus will die. Christ will not. There's truly real good news. And it's the gospel of Jesus. And he wants his people, he wants these believers to focus squarely on that. How do they do that? How do they live in such a way that is worthy of the good news, the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? How do, how do you get there? How do you live in that way? He says practically these three things. One, standing. Standing firm. And this is why we sing songs like this. I will put my trust in what? The very love of God, because it's what? A firm foundation. I'll put my trust in you alone. You're the firm foundation. Do you know what the, the first step to live in a life worthy of the gospel is? How do you stand firm? You believe in the gospel with everything that you have. You trust in, you rest in the finished work of Christ. So this is the practical aspect of what Paul is saying to do, to live in a, a life that's in a manner worthy of the gospel, to live the beautiful, humble gospel life that God calls us to. This is what you do. Believe it. Believe in and trust in and rest in all that Christ has done for you. It's not striving to get to God. It's resting in the fact that God came to us. Then we see the striving. That's the second thing. Striving... And look at the way it talks about striving. Now, Paul's using athletic language. He's using that persevere, run the race. He's using this language that's athletic, but he's doing it in such a way where he says, you strive, you, you fight hard. This is like sweat on the brow kind of language. You exercise in this powerful way toward this, toward this point, like this pointed end. This is what you're moving towards. And he describes the way in which it happens. He says what? Side by side. For the faith of the gospel. So not only do we, are we called to, to stand firm by believing the gospel. The way that we strive is not this individual striving. Where I just try to love God more on my own. By myself. In my own way. Just me. No we do it in community. You do it together. So that when I'm struggling to believe. You can preach the gospel to me. And when you're struggling to believe, I can preach it to you. And that we could persevere and run the race side by side. That we could trust in Jesus together. Look at the third thing. Not frightened. And here's what's happening in this passage and in this moment specifically. Paul's describing the reality of the pain 
of living out the gospel, truly, what it looks like to live out the gospel and, and, and the pain and the hurt that comes with it. For Paul to mention, don't be frightened, ultimately means there's something potentially to be frightened of. There are opponents, there are people who are going to challenge us and challenge the way that believers live. But look at what happens, look at what the, the two things that are ultimately revealed in the way that we live out the gospel. Look at verse 29 and you'll see it. It's, it's these opponents find their destruction and we find our salvation. So for those who oppose the Lord, there's destruction. And for us, it's salvation. Now, I will just tell you, we, I think I, we all have a propensity for what do I do? What do I do? How do I do this? How do I live? What's the thing? I want to leave this place today, and I want to I love the Lord better. I want to do better. I want to do more. How do I get out of these doors and do that? And I think we start to fall into this trap where we say, all right, what's God calling me to do? And we put that, truly the cart before the horse. We put the doing before resting in what he's done for us. But look very clearly, and you'll see the last phrase there. And it modifies both things from God. From God modifies not only the destruction of those who oppose God. Ultimately, it's him that is bringing them to that end because they've chosen to oppose him. And the salvation that we have is not what we do. What's its origin? Where's the place? Where does it come from? We're good at this. Come on. We're reading. Where's two words? You got it. From God. It comes from him. It is not from us. It's not our work. It is grace. And Paul writes all these things as we begin to kind of wrap up here. To tell them that they're going to face opponents in this world and in this life. Do you know what's wild about You've read stories and you've, you've heard of, I'm sure on some level, that, and even perhaps this phrase, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. There were people in this day, Paul's life and beyond, and even those previous, who actually, truly died because of their faith. Here's what you might not know, though. These people were not persecuted because they believed in Jesus. That's not why they were persecuted. That's not why they were oppressed. It's not why they were martyred. Because Rome didn't care. You could believe in a billion things. And Jesus could be one of them. But when you get to the place where you don't bow to Roman gods. Because you claim that Christ is the only one. That's when you see oppression. That's when you see murderdom as martyrdom. That's when people lost their life for the sake of the gospel. And I want to be candid and I want to be clear. And there's no way to express the depth of reality that I think you and I are not in a place where we're going to leave today and go profess the gospel and be at a place where we could lose our lives in that way. All right? I think we can all kind of get behind that. But you're going to be opposed in other ways. If you live and you stand firm in the gospel, you believe in Christ, you live in the reality of what he's created, a Christian community together, and you demonstrate the love of God to the world, you're going to be opposed on every front. You're going to be opposed. 
And I mean that, in, in a, in a, and I'm saying it in a very generic way, but there's also really specific ways. Because in the same way that Rome said, look, as long as you bow to the culture, you can do whatever else you want. The culture of this world is asking you and I to bow to it every day. Like, I, I want to say this candidly to you guys. Like, there's a group of students, there are people that you exist with every day that are confused about who they are to the point that they think they're multiple people because the culture says that that's okay. And that if you just want to be something, you just dream it up. And we're going to be opposed to that because the gospel calls us to it. The gospel calls us to tell truth to the world. And it's hard. And it's not fun because to the world, that's not love. But ultimately, if we let the world be loved the way it wants to be loved, we're telling them to live is gain and to die is loss. Do you see that? That's what we're telling the world. Do you know what we're called to tell the world? That to live is Christ, but if you and I die, it is gain. There is more. Beyond what you and I can see and touch and sense in every way, we have life in Christ Jesus. These are hard words, but they're true words. Can we rest in the beauty of the fact that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That we get to enjoy the benefit of life indwelled by the Spirit of Christ now. And that when you and I perish, it is not loss. It is gain. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father. God, you can cause us to have boldness through the power of your Spirit. Not to fear, Father, but to trust in, to rest in realized eternal life with you when we depart from this place. And would the beauty of Christ in his fullness, the opportunity to see you face to face, Lord, would that drive and inform our very lives now so that to live for us would be to experience you to experience Jesus in the deepest way. God, we want to live humble gospel lives. We want to believe in the truth of what you've done through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Let us stand firm in it, Father. Let us strive to trust in you and let us do that together, Father, in a way that we might not be frightened, but might demonstrate your love to the world. And see people experience the grace and the mercy that we found. God, we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we prepare to, to leave today and, and respond, I would encourage you to you can come to this altar. You can pray. You can sing. You can sit. You can stand. Uh, most importantly, more than anything, um, just ask the Lord uh, to allow you to trust in what he's calling you to do in this moment. Uh, and just... Truly, I would proclaim to you, I know, I get it, man, I get it. We don't walk aisles anymore. And, and my goal never is to manipulate or to stand here in such a way where I want you to come down. I like Talk to me later, talk to me afterwards, text me, call me, whatever. But this would be my heart's plea to you, believe in the gospel. 
trust in Christ for salvation. And let us as a church come alongside you and walk in that journey as you continue to grow in your love and knowledge of him. So let's worship together.